You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to a new episode of Delirious Nomads brought to you by Blacklight Media Records, a weekly podcast hosted by yours truly, celebrity chef Chris Santos. I hate calling myself that. I'm underground metal connoisseur Matt Bacon. He loves being called that. This is your new favorite podcast for all things heavy metal, as well as breakdowns of your favorite combat sports and riffing on some food talk every week with very special guests from across the globe. All right, we're back. Delirious Nomads, your podcast for all things heavy metal, brought to you by Metal Blade Records and Blacklight Media. We have a very special guest who appears to be walking away from us right now. I know you guys can't see that. I'm so sorry. But he he literally ran away the second I started that intro. But um, we are super excited. Um, He's a good, good friend of mine. His name is Mike Latronico. You may not know who he is. You may know who he is. But um, I met him probably a decade ago um, as he spent around the last decade uh, being the tour manager of Slayer on uh, their, their farewell tour and previous tours, um, taking him all around the world. And I'm sure there's some fun stories in there. But I also want to get to know the, the Mike Latronico before Slayer and how he got there and how he got here and what he's doing now post Slayer. So, Mike, thanks for being on the show. Love to see your face and uh, appreciate you taking some time. It's really great to be here, Chris. And, and um, I, I'd say long time to see, but I just saw you recently, which was a great, great time. I was honored to even be asked. So I have a pretty long career. I'll try to give you the, the Reader's Digest version of how I came to be where I am right now. Right. But it's it's lasted now 28 years. I started here in Denver at uh, at a little club called the Bluebird Theater. And it was, uh, it was an old 1920s vaudeville theater that had been a bunch of different things over the years. And its last incarnation before they made it into a the music venue was it was a porn theater back in the 80s and 70s where they produced their own porn and all that kind of fun stuff, which was kind of great. But uh, I, I stumbled in that place right when they were renovating it. At the time, uh, they, they still had the movie theater there. So they were still doing projection and all that kind of stuff. I knew how to I knew how to build a projection um, equipment from when I was a kid working in movie theaters and I was a bartender. So I got in being a bartender and a, and a, and a film projectionist and that we we opened in 94 uh, like a month later i was i was bar manager and co-general manager and and then that led to everything else i started working um you know i started booking the local bands and and uh doing all these shows and you know we were a 500 cap room it was you know during the 90s when when the music was you know the whole alternative scene was blowing up um i remember you know bands like oasis and alanis morissette and 
a bunch of different uh, metal bands. Hell, I even remember doing a Testament show back in the early 90s. So it all started there and I started booking and I realized really quick I didn't like booking. I like doing production and I like putting on the show rather than than finding bands and making deals and all that kind of stuff. So I started pursuing that and working for a promoter here in town who did all the metal shows. So he did Slayer, he did Pantera and White Zombie and, and all these great shows and uh, Prong. Um, I mean, I could, I could go on and on the more I could think about it. Typo Negative was another one that was, was really great. So we started doing all these metal shows around while I was working at the Bluebird that just kind of grew from there. And he joined a, a bigger group of promoters called Faye Concerts, which uh, was part of the Universal Music Group. And that eventually became... House of Blues concerts, which became Live Nation, blah, 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 down the line as far as the promoters in this town go. So I was working there and that all just kind of went along, you know, from and I grew up through the clubs in this town uh, with the Bluebird and the Ogden and the Gothic theaters back in the 90s. And and uh, I, I remember doing my first Red Rock show, which was War of the Gargantuans, which was Pantera White Zombie Tour, which ruled. That was at Red Rocks like in 96. And I knew all the Pantera guys from Dallas. I mean, it goes back even further. That's what I was saying before we started recording was my interactions with metal has, has been shit all my life since, um, since I was a teenager. And I grew up in Dallas where Pantera was. And I knew all those cats. So doing them here in, in Colorado and all that back then, that became really interesting. And I, I see these concentric circles in my life and, and how, how everything connects. I, I, I met Carrie King. At, um, at a place called Dallas City Limits back in like, I don't know, 87, 88, when they were on the um, South of Heaven tour. Mm -hmm. And it was like the night before and Pantera was playing, playing the bar and like they did like every Thursday free beer night. And I had a fake ID and, and was, was at the show and I'm in the crowd and Kerry King comes toward me, bumps into me and I spill my drink down my shirt. And uh, he ended up buying me a drink. And I'm like, here I am, this, this kid and Kerry King. I mean, it was, I was speechless. And that's why I first ran into him or he ran into me. And for years <laughs> later, for, for us to be friends now and, and work together and everything else, it's, it's pretty crazy. So, so that all started there and then continued here in Colorado. Eventually, I was doing shows between the stadium and, and the, the amphitheater and the arena and all that. And then the early, um, early 2000s, things kind of dried up. I was getting kind of, it's getting kind of bored with, with uh, being the, the local guy. And I, I wanted to get on the road. I went out on the road that eventually led to Slayer, which, you know, I, I mean, who was the first band you went on the road with? Well, it was, uh, it was one of my good friends who was a production manager for, for people like Melissa Etheridge and uh, Tracy Chapman. He was uh, the guy with Genesis and Phil Collins. He did the, um, uh, Pink Floyd stuff. His name was Howard. And he took me out on my first tour. And it was the it was the MTV college tour. And we were just kind of a promotional tour that went around. And there was like some bands that, that we would like set up in the quad. And uh, I was in charge. Of, I was like the production assistant. And I was in charge of setting up the, uh, the video screen every day. We had like all these different activations. There was a um, there was an interview with uh, with with Ozzy because um, Ozzy was really big on MTV at the time. There was that thing. There was like a jackass tent. There was all these different activations. And then we had like different bands that would play. Like one of them was um, a band called Authority Zero. I think they're still a band and, and different kind of music. It was hip hop or, or metal or whatever. So that was my first tour. And I had taken a month off to do that. And then about six months later, I parted ways and I went out with a band 
uh, called um, the String Cheese Incident from uh, here in Colorado. Oh, I love that band. That's great. And uh, is it, well, it's, it's kind of funny. They're, they're playing uh, the next three nights here in, in Colorado at Red Rocks, which we'll get to that I'm sure in a minute. I went out with those guys and that was my first real tour. And I went out as a production manager and a stage manager. And it was a two truck tour. Uh, and they were the first ones that took me to Europe. We went to, we went to Europe that, that summer. I would play Telluride Bluegrass Festival. And uh, that lasted, I don't know, about four or five months. And we, uh, we ended up parting ways after, after a fun summer in, in Europe and, and here in the States. And, and again, those guys are great. But yeah, that was my first tour. And then after that, shortly after that, I went out with a band called Sonia Dada, uh, which was kind of like a, um, they had a couple hits back in the early 90s. They were a, like a five-piece hippie band uh, with four soul singers up front, like, like, like real soul gospel singers. So they were kind of cool. And that lasted about, I don't know, about a year. And then from there, I, I started working for Snoop Dogg. I didn't know that. Yeah, which was, which, was a really, which was a really big change. So the guy that I, the tour manager who was tour managing String Cheese, he ended up involved with Snoop Dogg. And I, I went out on Snoop Dogg in what, 2005? And that was, um, it was Snoop Dogg in the game and this other cat, Ooh Wee. And that was here in the States. And I went out as the, the crew chief and stage manager. And as a promoter rep back in the 90s and the early 2000s, I did a bunch of shows with Snoop. So I knew his crew and I knew his, um, his tour manager, production manager, this guy, Ricky. And Ricky and I became really good friends. So th there's another weird full circle, somebody I knew. And then I came in from a different direction. So I worked for Snoop for like four years. During that four years, because Snoop didn't always tour. or So I did that one U.S. tour with him. And then, and then we went to Europe. And then I only did the European tours after that until until i was done in 2009 so in between all that i did this little tour that you probably heard of um sounds of the underground mm -hmm. so in 2006 i got a call from the house of blues concerts people and they're like hey we have this you know i think the first year of that tour was 2005 and that's when lamb of god was on it i think lamb of god and and of course guar was on it every year and it was a pretty big tour and they did it for two years after that. And so I came on in 2006, I did 2006 and 2007. And there again, another, another circle. As a promoter rep and, and running, running buildings here in Denver back in the 90s, I did a bunch of shows with Guar. So I'm really good friends with all the Guar camp. And I mean, we did, uh, we did like the Guar Mageddon show at the Ogden, which was pretty hilarious. There was, a, there was an interesting conversation with the, with the city council, with a couple of city council members about, about you know, odorous is um, the cuttlefish. Um, so, so there again, so there I was, I was doing that as a promoter rep and we did all these great shows with those guys at the Ogden and, and uh, different venues around town and in, in Colorado Springs and then come full circle to tour. I have a quick question. What does the venue look like after Guar leaves? Terrible. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it, that, that was kind of, it's, it's funny too, because I got to see that whole, that whole transition. So Guar, hell, when I first saw my first show with Guar was at the Gothic in like 91 with, with uh, Green Jello. They were called Green Jello still back then, but they ended up being called Green Jelly because Jello sued them, of course. Yep. And uh, I mean, that stuff stained your skin. I mean, if you got that shit on your skin, you literally were like purple or red or whatever for the next five days until it eventually just your skin wore off, you know? And and so, but now it's, it's, it's so water-based and they've, they've kind of nailed it to where it's really not that bad. It, it'll dye the shirts and stuff like that, but it doesn't dye your skin so bad. I think it's, you know, it still sticks to you, but 
it's not nearly as bad. Well, at the time, like the Ogden Theater, right next door to the Ogden Theater was this old carpet place. So we would get all their scraps and we would, and you do this all the time for bar shows. You, you do what is called the guarpet and you cover the stage with some shitty carpet because A, it gets slippery up there and they're in these monster suits made of latex and, and you know, it mm. can't have it wet. So, and whatever you have on the stage is going to be ruined, straight up, just ruined. So you put down visqueen, you know, a good visqueen plastic layer underneath to protect your stage. And then you put whatever shitty carpet you can find. And literally some of the carpet we would get would just be something that got ripped out of some terrible apartment that had been, you know, pee stained by cats and dogs or just smelled just awful. <laughs> but whatever, it's guard. Whose job was it for carpet acquisition? Oh, it was a it was a mixed bag of people. You know, again, like I said, we were lucky at the Ogden because we were right next door to a carpet place. But sometimes we'd send somebody in a truck to go down to one of the carpet stores and just, you know, dumpster dive and grab giant pieces of carpet that had been ripped out of houses. And, you know, especially when we're doing them in the Springs too, that's exactly how we did it. And then of course you have to visqueen everything. So you have to put plastic on everything. You have to put plastic and, and you have to put garbage bags on all your monitor wedges and you have to protect your microphones and you have to protect your side fills and you have to protect anything that's going to get hit. So we would put shit up on the walls, everything. It would, it would take a, a full prep day for a guar show. Same thing with ICP, the same kind of preparation for ICP. Some kind of shitty carpet on the stage to, to protect the stage and then plastic everything else. <laughs> and those, those guys too, back in the 90s, they were, you know, Denver was one of their biggest markets and they played a lot. And the promoter I worked for, Nobody in Particular Presents is what they were called. They were the juggalo promoters. We were doing all these crazy ICP shows back in the 90s when they were kind of a thing. They too, at first, all their Fago was, was regular Fago. And so it would be the stickiest, grossest mess and it would get all over your lighting trusses because they'd be punting those things off the stage and launching them and shaking them up and slamming them on the stage. And then they would shoot off into the crowd. And I mean, sticky. You're we would literally, we would have to take our barricade the next day to the car wash across the street from the Ogden and, and hose it down just to get all that off. But they were ruining so much equipment. They eventually, you know, some genius is like, well, why don't we use sugar-free? Mm-hmm. And it changed everything. Just like Guar, you know, they, they changed from their hard paints and their hard dyes to something a little bit more water-soluble over the years as they learned a bunch of lessons. But right. yeah, messy bands. <laughs> but still, so it's, it's crazy. So there again, I, I end up on this tour in 2006, uh, Sounds of the Underground, which was a great tour. I mean, it was behemoth, you know, so that's when I met all those guys and, and Nurgle and, 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 and all those dudes. And Flames was on that tour. I think Black Dahlia Murder was on that tour. It was, it was such, it was like 13 bands in a day on one stage. And, whether, and that was usually in some parking lot somewhere on a truck stage, or there was a couple of them where we like played, um, we literally played the loading dock of an amphitheater and just played to the loading dock. We did that in Camden at uh, Susquehanna. And I think it's called a Tweeter Center back then. And we, we did that also at um, uh, San Antonio and a couple of the Verizon amphitheaters. It was still, it was, it was that show, right? It was just like set up in some horrible uh, parking lot somewhere in the sun in the middle of summer with a bunch of metal bands and, and let them duke it out. And it was so much fun. So that's what I was doing in between Snoop tours back in the mid 2000s and again it's where i met the lamb of god guys uh, i met and and where i started really making you know i guess making a name for myself in the in the metal the metal universe was sounds of the underground and the fact that you know i grew up in denver uh doing 
you know, working for a metal promoter and we were doing all the punk and metal shows. So I, you know, and, and I have a memorable name. So, and I guess sometimes a memorable personality. <laughs> so, you know, I started really getting, I, I just know all these camps and that led to um, the mayhem tour. So, and so that sounds of the underground was 2006, 2007 mayhem. The first mayhem was 2008. I got a call from, John Reese and, and Kevin Lyman, hmm. like January of 2008. They're like, hey, we've got this new tour. You know, we know you from Sounds of the Underground. I knew Kevin Lyman from doing Warp Tour here in Denver for uh, the different promoters that I work for. So, you know, I, I already knew those camps and, and uh, their production manager, Carrie Nicholson and all these people. And, and so I was already kind of in with that camp too. So they're like, hey, we think you'd be the perfect guy to do this, to do this tour. And I'm like, Awesome. I mean, to me, it's like, I can't believe it. I'm going to be, you know, the production manager for this new metal tour that's taking the place of Ozfest. And, you know, that was the headliners that year was Slipknot and um, Disturbed, right? When they were super big. And it's when it was all blowing up, that whole, that whole new metal scene kind of was dying off and the Slipknots were getting popular. And, and um, so I was super excited about it. And before that happened, they're like, hey, you know, we've got Taste of Chaos going out and it's starting in Denver. And that was in February, I think, of 2008. And they're like, you know, again, a bunch of people I've known and known for a long time and knew me as a promote working for promoters and everything. So they're like, why don't you got, you know, why don't you come out on this? We need a tour manager. And I'd never tour managed before, but but again, they're like, you know how to settle shows and you know what you're doing out there on, you know you know, production, you know, all these things, this is a good way for you to, to, to learn our camp. So that was taste of chaos. And I think God was that maybe it was Avenged sevenfold that year. I remember mm -hmm. we had a, there was a big Japanese contingency. So we had all these Jap Japanese bands uh, and a Japanese translator. And that's, um, I can't remember exactly who was on that tour, but um, I think it was Avenged. So I went out on that tour as a tour manager during that tour. I get a call. I think we're in, El Paso and I get a call from Kevin Lyman and, and, um, and John Reese. And they're like, dude, you've been doing such a great job as tour manager. We originally, um, we had asked this guy, Greg, to uh, be the production manager for sounds or not for uh, the mayhem festival. And he couldn't do it. And that's why you got the call. He was doing something with green day. And I, there's again, somebody I've known, I'd known at that time since the early nineties, Greg, Greg Dean. And, We'd been friends for a long time. And so he's in with the Green, Green Day camp and warped and all that. And but they canceled all their shit. So he was out of a gig. So they they rehired him as the production manager. And they're like, you're doing such a great job as a tour manager for Taste of Chaos. We want you to be the, you know, we're gonna just pivot you into this role. And mm. that's when I became a tour manager. So and that's how it happened. And literally that's how it happened. And it changed, it changed the course of my career. How many years were you on Mayhem? I was a tour manager and tour accountant on that first Mayhem, which was 2008. And that was the only year I did it. I honestly, and um, you know, I'm sure John Reese and Kevin would both remember the, the point at the end where they're giving out bonuses and high fives and everything. And that tour killed me. It was the most money that ever gone through my hands. It was all accounting. And I was out there with a bunch of friends and Mastodon was on that tour. And we, you know, just all these really great bands and, and had such great times, but the accounting end of it uh, and all the cash, I mean, I think I went through over a million dollars in cash out of, through my hands and, and the stress of all that, um, that last day, I think we're at Darien Lake up in New York and 
they're giving out, you know, bonuses and everything. They gave me a really nice bonus. They treated me really well. And I told him, I, I looked at Kevin Lyman. I was like, you know what, man, don't ever call me for this job again. Oh, shit. You know? I was like, I would rather be the stage manager of the smart punk stage on, on warp tour. And if you know, warp tour, the smart punk stage was like stage seven. It was like this dinky little punk stage. I was like, I'd rather do that job than ever do this job again. It was it, as much as I, I love being out here. It made me miserable. That's literally how I walked away from that job. I ended up being on another three Mayhems. So I was I was on there twice with Slayer, and then I was on with Megadeth, because Megadeth was before Slayer. So, so after Mayhem, I went back out with Snoop, and I was with Snoop until 2009. At, at one point, too, I, was, uh, I took a job with Carl and Paul over at ferret records so you know they were doing their they were doing their management thing they were managing like cannibal corpse and they were managing all these bands so i went and worked for them for like i don't know about two months out in um princeton in the spring of 2009 i was still working for snoop and i was trying this out and it wasn't a good fit and they wanted me to move to jersey <laughs> i'm just not an east coast guy so i kind of i was like this really isn't a good fit and i stayed with snoop and then that burned me and snoop and i we parted ways and then I went out with Beyonce. Oh, wow. Yeah, totally. I got, I, it's like literally Snoop and I, we parted ways. That's when um, like the Nation of Islam, these, these Nation of Islam cats took over and started doing everything. So I was the tour manager at that time. So they got my job and I moved on. The only thing that bummed me out about that was it was right before the Playboy Mansion gig, which I was super bummed about. But, you know. And I even remember talking to management. I was like, just let me do that one show. I mean, guys like me, we don't get invited to the Playboy Mansion. I mean, I'll, I'll hide behind some playmates or something. Dog will never see me. But yeah, so regardless, like right after I lost the Snoop Dogg tour, I got Beyonce. And that was um, that was a tour accounting gig for Live Nation. I did that. And what after that was the recession. Uh, then I went out on the road with um, these, uh, these jazz cats called uh, uh, the Grey Boy All-Stars, uh, kind of a west coast boogaloo kind of thing and uh, another band an offshoot band called carl denson's tiny universe carl denson is this crazy ass talented saxophone player and um he actually took over playing sax for the stones when um when oh. their their guy forever uh died so carl got the call on that so he ended up playing for the stones turned out super great for him so i worked for him during the recession and that was like a van in a trailer tour, you know, I'd never been in a van in a trailer before. And, you know, we were playing Jazz Fest and, and Mardi Gras because, you know, again, they're kind of a, a funk jazz band and um, super groovy into the, it was kind of the jam scene kind of thing. And strangely enough, that led to Megadeth. And so Megadeth, I got a call again from the guy who called me for Snoop the first time, the guy that I worked with on String Cheese who I knew from back in the 90s, he worked for a band called EMF, uh, Electric Motherfucker, or whatever they, that stood for or whatever. But uh, so again, somebody I'd known forever, he gives me this call to come out and be the, um, be the tour manager for Megadeth. And at the time, Live Nation was doing this, it was Megadeth Slayer and Anthrax. It was, um, oh gosh, it was the, the Carnage Tour, right? So it was like the, off, it was the offset of the big four. The big four had just happened. Well, the, the beginnings of the Big Four had just happened out in, um, out in Europe on Sonosphere, which basically when Big Four, I don't know if, I mean, maybe your listeners don't know this, they probably do, but Big Four started in Europe at Sonosphere, and, it, and it's just like all four of those bands were booked on the same festival. They weren't playing the same stage or anything like that, and it began as a marketing thing, and then it became this thing, and they started playing it around European festivals on Sonosphere. So that had just happened. They'd just done the big DVD in uh, Bulgaria 
which uh, I think a lot of people know that's the big, you know, that was the big, big four DVD. And I think there was like 90 some odd thousand people. I was not at that show, unfortunately. This was, it's like right after that, they came back to the States and um, they're touring. And my friend, like I said, from Snoop and, and String Cheese, he was the production manager and they needed a new tour manager. So I got the call and I was doing the show here in Denver at this place called Magnus Arena for Live Nation as a one-off. They just needed a guy. And so they paid me as a you know subcontractor to come in and rep the show for them. So literally I came out, did the show, met Dave, and I left on the bus that night. And um, so I That's was- That's crazy. The, yeah, right? I mean, literally I, it got, I worked one gig and then got on the bus and left. And so that's when I really got to know the Slayer guys and on that tour. So that lasted for me for the rest of the big four. So I was with Megadeth for, for all the big four shows, big four Indio, big four uh, New York, all the, the, the actual real big four tour that happened in Europe, which was unbelievably cool, all that stuff. So I was there for that with Megadeth. And I was, when I was with Megadeth, I was also, um, I was also Vic Rattlehead every night. So there was oh, a, oh, that's awesome. There was a moment during during all that, and and dude, it, and honestly, it was it was kind of a chore. I was telling this story just the other night. Um, like literally, my first my first show after I jumped on the bus with Megadeth, I think we're in Dallas. Again, full circle stuff. I grew up in Dallas. As a kid, I went to that shed to see shows like Metallica and 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 everybody else. So, uh, full circle. Here I am in Dallas. And I'm talking to Dave Mustaine and, um, you know, every night they have Vic Rattlehead come out on the stage and the guy who was doing it was their merch guy. Well, he, he had to leave the tour. And so they had this costume and Dave looks at me and he's, he's like, Oh, you're the new guy. You're my new tour manager. And literally he looks me up and down and sizes me up. He's like, yeah, I think you'll fit the suit. You're Vic Rattlehead. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, what? He's like, get with junior. Um, Dave Ellison he's like go get with him and and he'll teach you what to do and the moves and everything but you're Vic Rattlehead oh my god I'm like okay <laughs> <laughs> wait so so Dave Ellison had like when he was in the band was the guy who teaches everyone how to be Vic Rattlehead at that point yes we were doing Rust in Peace in its entirety right and during during a part of it where I can't remember the name of the song, you know, I'm, I'm blanking here for sure. I always blank during interviews, but um, during, during, there's that, that bass solo um, during, during that record, right. Toward uh, two thirds in. And so that was the piece during that. Right. So I would come out and it would just be me and Dave and, and, uh, and Sean on drums and Dave jr. So Ellison, he'd be doing this, this bass solo and I would come out and uh, we had these two little ego risers and he would be on one and I would be on the other. And the whole stage would be like fogged out. And I would come out and, and get on this little ego riser and I would, I would get with my finger, you know, because I was, was wearing the, the um, you know, the skull mask with the chains and I was dressed in a suit and I had, I had gloves on, you know, skeleton hand gloves. So I would literally come out and I would look all ominous because again, I was Vic Rattlehead and it was weird at first because I'm on stage and I, I'm not an onstage guy. I've never been an onstage guy. When I was in drama back in, in, in high school and in, in school and stuff, I was always one of the set design guys or whatever, you know, I'm not, a, I'm not the guy on stage, but I'm in a costume. Nobody knows who the hell I am. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of cool. And, and it was Ellison that gave me that confidence, you know, cause Ellison's like, dude, you're Vic Rattlehead. You're like Eddie from Iron Maiden. Everybody loves you. 
You know, you've got to understand that and you'll see that when you get out there and your stage fright will go away because again, nobody knows who you are. They think you're this great monster. And I'm like, okay. So I go out there and I'm nervous. God, I was so nervous. And I had friends from high school who were there. Um, you know, cause again, I grew up in Dallas. I was like, come on down to the show. I'm going to be Vic. <laughs> and, I, <laughs> and I get up there and you go up there. And, and again, I go up and I, and I point I scan the crowd looking ominously with my finger and I point at somebody and then I give them the throat cut move with my hand. And then I would come off the, we would both at one point of the, the song, we both come off our risers and we would cross the stage. That would be the hard part because I would have to be downstage enough to miss him, to not run into David because we couldn't stilts? see him. No, I wasn't. I'm, okay. I'm six foot tall. So I was wearing a, um, I was wearing a pair of um, Doc Martin steel toed boots with really thick, um, really thick soles. Okay. And I mean, that was about it. But so, and you know, and David Ellison, he's, he's not a tall guy. So the two of us, it, it, I was still bigger than him. But so sure. during the cross stage moment, the stage is completely fogged out. I mean, mm -hmm. you can't see. So that was the whole trick there. That was the hardest part of the entire move was to make sure that I was downstage far enough where I would not hit David. And, and then I would move to the other ego riser, get up on the ego riser and do the whole scanning the crowd and picking somebody and cutting their throat with my finger. Um, and then I would leave the stage and I couldn't see. So somebody would always have to catch me, right? So I'd be, I would get off the stage and it would, I'd be walking off the stage and I knew, you know, knew where to go upstage and upstage of the, um, you know, right to the side of the drums and all that and the, and the Marshall stacks. And then there would always be somebody there to grab me right? because it'd be so dark and I'm in this mask. Right. Uh, it was great. Oh, that's it. I had no idea. So this, is, this is the second time on this podcast that I've learned. Um, so John Tempesta from The Cult was on an earlier episode last year and told us that he was him. he was the not guy for Anthrax back in the day. Oh, right. I forgot that. Oh, yeah, totally. <laughs> um, but listen, Mike, I have good news and bad news for you. Um, we've, done, we've done about 60 of these um, and we're running out of time. So this is going to have to be a two parter. We're gonna have to do it again. Like I told you, I'm I'm long winded and my story's long. I mean, fuck, I haven't even really gotten into it. It's crazy. Lasco from Ozzy ended up being a two parter, and it was really great. Um, but yeah, I wanna we we need to talk about the Slayer years. We got to talk about all of it. So why don't we let our listeners off the hook right now, and then um, we'll schedule you soon to come back. And we gotta get we gotta we haven't even started the Slayer yet. I know it's it's funny and. and and I, I kind of figured that too. And that's when, when you first said something, I'm like, even the Reader's Digest version of my story <laughs> is pretty um, long winded. And, and, you know, I don't, I don't want to rush it because I want to ask questions like explain to our listeners and to me, like, what is a, what's a, what's your day as a tour manager for Slayer? And, you know, that, that's a, such a, a specific skill set. So, and of course I want some road stories and that kind of stuff. So, uh, are you willing to come back and do this again? Absolutely. All right. Awesome. So, Mike, thank you for that. That was absolutely fascinating. I had no idea. As, as good of friends we are, I had no idea you ever worked with Snoop Dogg or Beyonce. I think that's incredible. Um, I always just saw you as the metal guy. Um, and uh, we'll have you back soon and uh, cover all the rest of it. Yeah, I mean, I didn't even get into the Snoop Dogg stuff where we did this huge tour with uh, P. Diddy in Europe. We did a, we did a few tours with, with Ice Cube and uh, what a awesome dude that guy is to work with i mean there's again that i'm trying to i'm trying to race through it <laughs> it's maybe, it's crazy maybe, when i actually talk about it maybe it'll be our first three-parter who knows uh, it's just weird like i said it's, it's crazy when i start talking about it my wife says that all the time she's like you never talk about it. it's like but once i do it's tough to stop me <laughs>
That's a, that's another part. That's another part of the conversation. Not for today, but like you know, how do you how do you ma- how do you manage traveling the world and keeping a healthy marriage at home? You know what I mean. So there's lots lots of stuff to talk about. There is. Thanks for joining us today. We're going to get in touch with you immediately. to reschedule you as soon as you're able. And then, um, yeah, peace out. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mike. Thank, it's a great seeing you both. Awesome. This has been fun. All right. So that was awesome. Thank you, everyone out there for listening to Delirious Nomads, sponsored by Blacklight Media. We will be coming back at you next week with another awesome guest. Be sure to follow Blacklight Media on socials for new music and more. And above all, keep it heavy. I don't think it overstates things to say that the Beatles were the greatest gift to entertainment and culture of our time, a secular religion, if you will, with their universal appeal and demonstrable impact on people's lives. I'm Robert Rodriguez, host of Something About the Beatles. With every episode, I speak with historians, musicians, artists, and Beatle witnesses, all in the service of fresh insights into the most joyous cultural entity the world has ever known. I hope you'll join me and listen to Something About the Beatles, now at Evergreen, and wherever you get your podcasts. Hello out there! Yes, hello out there, everyone. I'm Hal Schwartz. And I'm Flynn McClain. Together we host None But the Brave, a podcast dedicated to the music and career of Bruce Springsteen. Bruce and E Street Band are on tour right now for the first time in six years, and we're taking a detailed look at what's happening on stage in our bi-weekly episodes. We've also been recently joined by some very exciting guests, including rock journalist Warren Zanes and Stephen Hyden, Backstreet's Magazine founder Charles Cross, and Barstool's Kirk Menahan. If you're a diehard Springsteen fan, this is the show for you. So please subscribe to Nimba the Brave on your favorite podcasting platform, and we hope to see you further on up the road. Thank you so much! We'll be seeing you!